Well, it's good to uh, take open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. The, the theme of our study uh, of 1 Peter has been this, not home and then the all-important yet. And so we have been looking at the fact that Peter, writing to these persecuted believers who are scattered throughout what is called Asia Minor or or Turkey today, really places their focus upon the certainty of what lies ahead. Even in chapter 1, noting the inheritance that awaits, even in the midst of if necessary, the trials that they're occurring presently, they should not have their, their eyes fixed upon those circumstances, but rather upon what is to come. We've also seen our identity as Christ followers, and we're going to pick up on that even today. Peter has talked about the way in which we are to love one another with this fervent love demonstrating the way in which Christ has loved us. But then we have a coupled question to our love for one another. How should we live among those who do not believe the gospel? Maybe I'll put it another way. How should we live in a culture that is uh, routinely now colliding with between our Christian worldview and the secular worldview? How should we live when our worldviews are continually colliding and always causing or, or, or causing this friction more and more in the day in which we live? I have a preaching mentor who I remember he posited these three ways that we can respond to a changing culture, changing society around us. He said we can war against it, we can withdraw from it, or we can be a witness in the midst of it. And what I want you to see from God's word, from Peter's letter here to the church that is undergoing vast persecution but yet not the full persecution that'll come with Nero quite yet, that Peter has this point for his reader. We are to be witnesses to a lost and dying world, even in the way in which we suffer. So if I could boil down what the sermon for today is, it's this. In identifying as a Christ follower, this compels a winsome way of life so that Christ might be made known. Or to put it another way, being named with Christ demands a particular way of living that Christ might be shown to a watching world. So Peter, how is this? Look with me at 2 Peter I mean, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. If we are going to maintain this winsome way of living that Christ might be known, look at the ways in which Peter calls us to obedience. First, Peter tells us that we are to refrain and maintain. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles... 
to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. I want you to note here, the first thing that Peter talks about and identifies with is that, uh, that part of our identity. He says that we are beloved. We are the loved ones. The loved ones of God, the loved ones of the apostle Peter as he is writing this to the audience. But we must maintain and realize that we are those that are loved by God as Christ followers. On top of that, we are to note that we are strangers and aliens in this world in which we live. These are two words that Peter has already used in his epistle to describe the believers that he's writing to. It is in light of this identity and in light of the things that he has just said in verse 9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In light of our identity and all that Christ has called us to be, because of that, because of who we are, and even better, we'll see, because of whose we are, we are called to live in a compelling winsome way. You see, in Christianity, our beliefs cannot be stripped from our ethic. We are to believe certain things, but that is to bring life change, life transformation within us. For theology devoid of ethics is removing the head from the heart and the hands, and that is not biblical Christianity. Rather, we are called to live transformed lives. So what's this look like? Interestingly, Peter lays out a put off as well as a put on. Oftentimes we find this in the ethics uh, of Paul or in the ethic of Peter. Look what we're supposed to put off. He says, refrain, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Note here, Peter does not present an idea of Christian perfectionism as though we will not continually struggle with sin. Rather, we are in this continual struggle to refrain from the sinful desires that seek to wage war against what God desires in our life. In this continual refraining from sinful desires, though, we have to acknowledge that we don't do this in our own power, in our own strength. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer, who brings the transformation from an inside to outward appearance. It is the engine, the Holy Spirit, He is the engine that brings such change as we refrain from, abstain from, put off these sinful desires. But it's not just something to put away sinful desires. We are also to put on, note this, godly conduct. We are to maintain conduct among yourselves that is honorable among the Gentiles. Note this, this word honorable or good Yes, it entails moral goodness as we are called to be holy 
at Christ is holy, chapter one of 1 Peter. But there is something more to this idea of goodness because Peter uses a different word for good or honorable here than he does in the rest of his letter. This Greek word carries the additional thought of this goodness, this honorable living, being attractive and appealing to the watching world. It is to be winsome in appearance and in character. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you something that I was convicted of as I was studying for the sermon today. We, of all people, should be modeling what it looks like to live a thriving life and not just a surviving life. Can I get an amen? We, of all people, because of the certainty that we know the one true and living God and we know that he has redeemed us unto himself and that the certainty of the future is that our inheritance is secured, guarded by him, it's imperishable, it awaits us. Because of that, we should be living a thriving life and not just a surviving life. This does not mean that we seek materialism, for materialism is just superficial of this world, it's temporal, it's passing away. But rather, the Christian should be one who models a Christian contentment with everything that comes into their life. For they know that this world is not their home. But yet, they are on their way to a home in which their inheritance is secure. Also, it is to be noted here that Peter has no idea of what might be considered Christian isolationism or monasticism, living alone. For how can a believer in Christ Jesus be a winsome example to a watching world if they're not among the watching world? Living alone or in a holy huddle does not remove the presence of sin because guess where sin is? Deep within us. So for us to seek to even be alone does not remove us from sin. For we have to deal with our own sin. Therefore, as he says, refrain from sinful desires, but also maintain your winsome conduct before a watching world. Why? Why, Peter, is this so important that we refrain and maintain? Well, look at what he says here at the end of verse 12, that they will glorify God on the day that he visits. How? How, Peter? How will they glorify God upon his appearing? Well, think of it this way. Look at what it says. By seeing your good, attractive, winsome works. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Note this. For the purpose of, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. But just because we are to live this winsome way of life, this beautiful way of life, this attractive way of life, 
does not mean that it will be accepted by all. For look what it says. Look what Peter says here. That there will be those that slander you as evildoers. Living in this winsome way does not remove all the friction from the culture. Rather, it seeks to ensure that the friction between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview is rightly grounded in the fact that Christ calls us to righteousness and to living a righteous, winsome lifestyle before a watching world. So Peter, we are to refrain, we are to maintain so that our winsome works might point people to Christ. Note this, altering their very eternity. My preaching mentor, or one of them, he loves or, or gives a diagram that, uh, that I want you to see up here on the screen. It is that our good works produce goodwill whereby we have a platform to share the good news. Now, each and every one of these steps is important. If we just do good works whereby we build goodwill, but yet we never get to sharing the good news, then we have done a disservice to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to do the good deeds, the good things that Christ has called us to do in the way in which we live, these winsome acts, attractive acts, so that Christ might be known among us, building a goodwill of which we can then share the good news of the gospel. Brother and sister, we want to ensure that the world knows the message of the gospel and that it is the biblical message of the gospel that they reject, not just rejecting the flaws of the messenger. I want to repeat that. We want to present the gospel in such a way that the world rightly rejects what is the biblical gospel rather than rejecting what might be the flaw of the messenger in presenting that gospel. So, Peter says we are to refrain and maintain. Now, you like me might be going, okay, Peter, that's, that's enough. Uh, it's already convicting, but Peter ups the ante. For Peter will provide us with a number of different examples of what winsome living in the world looks like in regard to societal and cultural structures. He will talk about governance. He will talk about slaves and masters. And he will talk about marriage. It is something to note here that with all that Peter talks about in regard to these societal cultural structures in place, he calls us to obey and to walk in the way that Christ did so that the wisdom of deciding what response is appropriate really comes back to not, is this uh, going to cost me something, but rather, is this following after Christ? Let's look at the first one. First, 
Christ calls us to obey the governing authorities. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Peter writes, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Note the all-encompassing nature of the command that we are to obey. Note this, every human authority. Whether this be the top authority in the land, which would have been the emperor in the day, or whether it be those who execute the authority of that top ruler because it has been granted to them, not just political figures, but even law enforcement officials of our day. The task for the government here, as Peter notes, is this, that they might punish what is evil and they might praise what is good. So you might be asking, even as I was asking, why? Why does Peter call us to obey the governing authorities in this way? Well, speaking biblically for a second, let's look at what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Why obey governing authorities? Well, listen to Paul. Paul says, let everyone submit to governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So these authorities are from God. They've been instituted by God to the degree that Paul will even say they are ministers of God. Peter, writing to those persecuted believers, he says this, you are to obey because of whose you are. Look at what it says in verse 16. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as, note, God's slaves. When someone is a slave, it means that their will is intertwined with that of their master. They are to be doing what their master desires them to do. If we are slaves of God, then we are to be doing what God's will desires for us to do. Look at what it says. We're not left to figure out what this is. For we see here in verse 15, for it is God's will, note, that you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Note this, how? By doing good. Allegiance to God does not exempt us from submitting to human authorities. Rather, because we are slaves of God, it compels us to obey them. God's will 
is that we would silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is good. Now, interestingly, this is a different Greek word than Paul's used for good before. Here, this word good carries the additional idea of doing what is beneficial. We are not anarchists as Christians. No, we render unto Caesar what are Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Our good works are to be winsome, attractive in nature to a watching world, but they are to be beneficial to society at large. I was trying to think through some of the ramifications that from Christianity and from those who are, who are followers of Christ, some of the benefits that have come to society. And these are some that came to my mind. Science itself, being a chemist and a former uh, career occupation, one of the things that, that I like to note is that the study of science is being able to understand the order of the way in which things work. But if you don't have a God of order, you cannot study the things as they are. Christianity points to this study of science and the way in which they, uh, things are and the order of these things, and that is a benefit to society at large. But not only this, we, we think about medical care and the modern hospitals that we have were founded upon Christian values of serving those in need or orphan care, caring for the destitute, those neglected, abandoned, abused, foster, adoptive care. All of these things come out of a worldview that says we are to care for others feeding the hungry. During the Depression, it's interesting that churches are the ones who start what are called soup kitchens to care for those in need. When it comes to educational initiatives, it was individuals like Martin Luther who pushed for literacy among the common people so that they would be able to understand what the scriptures said in their own language. We could talk about the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement with William Wilberforce, with Harriet, Harriet Beecher Stowe, with Sojourner Truth, with Dr. Martin Luther King. We could talk about disaster relief with the Salvation Army or the uh, disaster relief here in Missouri or the Sin Network. We could talk about the, the good winsome things and the beneficial things of combating human trafficking or defending the preborn or defending the importance of marriage or packing a shoebox with the gospel to go around the world, or newborns in need. What, whatever it is, do you see the idea is that our good works would be winsome, would be beneficial to society so that it might build goodwill whereby we share the good news. Now, we cannot sugarcoat that the church has not always gotten it right in these areas of good works and goodwill. And for that, we must believe the gospel, repent, and trust in him. You might also be asking, though, Pastor Brad, is this some utopian ideal? Is this some Pollyanna thought 
that we are to sort of stick our heads in the sand like an ostrich and thinking that all governing authorities do what is right. Peter and Paul are fully aware that every governing authority does not just punish what is evil and praise what is good. I mean, think about the Old Testament examples of Pharaoh. Think about the Old Testament examples of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Think about the very persecution that they're encountering here in the early days of Nero that will just intensify as it continues. No, it's not that government receives a pass. So what do we do whenever our worldview as a Christian collides with the worldview of the governing authorities? Well, we obey the higher authority. And look at what Peter says to us here. Peter says, Submit to every note human authority. He draws a distinction because of the Lord. The Lord being the higher authority, the one who has called us as his slaves to obey the governing authority, if that governing authority should somehow seek to usurp God in the days of which this was written, it would have been worship of Caesar himself as God. And the Christians of the day said, no, we cannot worship Caesar as God. So how do we handle this? How do we handle such times when there is conflict between the call to obey God and fear God, but also to obey the governing authority? Well, I think we get an example of this in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. The disciples are told that they are no longer to speak the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen to what they say. Peter and John answered the religious leaders of the day who were telling them not to speak in Jesus' name and to heal in Jesus' name. Listen to what they say. Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Note their response. They are not willing to compromise and not speak of Christ and his redemption, but they are willing to place whatever punishment might come for that in the hands of the governing authorities. They are willing to suffer the consequences, if necessary, for the sake of obeying their master. Brothers and sisters, this is a message for us today. May we be those who seek to obey our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also obey those human authorities to the degree that is possible. Peter provides us a second one of these examples when he speaks about obeying masters. Look at what it says in verse 18. Peter writes, Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and the gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of the conscience of God, 
Someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Note here, the slave's response is conditioned just as our response is conditioned to governing authorities. For we saw because of the Lord in verse 13. Note here it says, they are to submit to your masters with all, and the word actually here is fear. Interestingly, in the book of 1 Peter, fear always belongs to God. Therefore, the, the slave is to obey because of their fear, not towards their master, but be towards God himself. They are to obey, possibly even suffering for righteousness' sake, so that the word of God might be made known through them. And now it's something to note here when we're talking about this these household slaves, that slavery in the Roman Empire had differences with the slavery that we probably are thinking of when we think about slavery in America and in the American. Conservative estimates place approximately a third of the population in this category of slavery in the Roman Empire. Slaves could sell themselves or sell their service in such a way in order to pay a debt that they owed. Slaves could very well be more educated than their masters. For some of the slaves in the, in the Roman Empire were even physicians themselves being able to give their services in this way. And Peter addresses here the household slaves, those who were generally the least oppressed group in this time. But we should note, that even in the Roman Empire, there were abuses of this master-slave relationship. And this abuse is actually a hallmark of humanity itself, to treat one another's not in the dignity of being made in the very image of God. And without trying to seek an equivalency of examples here, I want you to think about this as we're talking about living a winsome way of life, a way of life that benefits society at large. Think about your employer. How might honoring the relationship that you have as employee to employer point to Christ in a winsome, beneficial way? Look with me at the final section here of what Peter has to say before he picks up on marriage. What it means to follow Christ. Verse 21, Peter writes, For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Maybe your first inclination upon what Peter has to say regarding obeying authorities and slaves obeying their masters is, that's just not fair. That's just not just. As a Christ follower, the Bible takes our eyes off what is fair and just in our present circumstances, and rather places our eyes upon the paradigm of who Christ is, what Christ has done, and the certainty of our future. Note here, Peter says that we are to follow the example of Christ, for he has given us his very footsteps to follow in. It's interesting, this word for example. Karen Jobes notes this. This word suggests the closest of copies. English words as example or model or pattern are far too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not just simply an example or a pattern or some sort of model, as if one among many, Rather, Jesus' example is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. This word example, actually, it has the idea of a stencil. The idea of in which the early Greek children would have learned how to write their alphabet by following the very stencil in front of them, following in its path. Here, we are to follow Jesus' life, which was winsome and beneficial as our stencil, as those who are to follow in his footsteps. What does that look like? Well, just look at what it says, beginning in verse 22. Christ, who did not commit sin. Brother and sister, In Christ, we are to abstain from what is evil and maintain a good way of life, ensuring that if we encounter suffering, that we are suffering for righteousness' sake. Note what else Christ did. Christ, who was insulted, reviled, slandered, brother and sister, but yet we, following in his footsteps, are not to retaliate in kind when these things occur to us. Christ, who suffered, note this, unjustly. We do not threaten, but rather entrust ourselves to the just judge of all the earth, not in some sort of passive resignation to the circumstances, but rather with a patient confidence that God will take care of it, for he is the just judge of all the earth. Christ, finally, is the one who provided healing 
and we long to exemplify Jesus so that others may come to know the healing that can occur through the biblical gospel. It's interesting to note here that Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Listen to this verse. Now I, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for you. Listen to what he says. And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. Paul says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does this mean? Is is Paul in some way contributing to the, the substitutionary atonement that Christ has paid for us? Well, absolutely not. So what does this mean to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's that the world has not seen Christ's afflictions, but yet when we model what Christ has done for us, they see us as Christ's followers, following in the very steps of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are able to see the witness of Christ in us. So brother and sister, let me ask you this, where we began. If you identify as a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, are you living a compelling, winsome way of life? A way of life that is thriving and not just surviving. A way of life that has your, your, your perspective set on eternity and the hopefulness of the living hope that awaits us so that Christ might be made known to a watching world and that eternity might be impacted by those who would believe in, trust in, cling to that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you. And Lord, we acknowledge, Lord, that in our own power and in our own strength, we cannot live in such a way, Lord, to refrain and maintain. Lord, we cannot live in our own power in a way, Lord, that would compel a winsome way of life. But Lord, you have called us to that and empowered us by your Spirit Lord, that there might be those, Lord, maybe even today, maybe even in this room, Lord, because of the the example of walking in your steps might come to know you. Lord, I pray that you would work through your word. Lord, that you would draw men and women, boys and girls unto yourself. Lord, whether here in person or whether online, Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that we would teach and model it before a watching world. These things we pray in your name. Amen.